Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and today I'm joined by Dr. Tom Howard, CEO and CIO at Athena Invest. Uh, In an industry full of yes people and wannabes and posers, he is a true iconoclast and a bold thinker and one of my favorite behavioral thinkers around. He's the author of a couple of great books on the intersection of behavioral finance and value investing. And I'm very grateful to have him here today. Dr. Tom, welcome. Good to be here, Daniel. Yes, great to great to have you with us again, a return guest, one of only a few privileged to to make it make it to the big stage twice. So Tom, you don't want to start out at at a high level. There there are like three, I would say, major applications of behavioral finance. You know, the first we'll say probably the most discussed is behavioral coaching, trying to help clients make calm, rational decisions. The second one I'm going to call financial wellness, sort of financial holism. This is understanding the role of money and creating a life worth living, happiness and money, you know, the study of what is enough, these, these sorts of considerations. The third one is what we'll call behavioral investing or you know behavioral alpha generation which is using an understanding of psychology to generate better than average returns and this is where you live in this sort of third i think least discussed part of the behavioral finance world why is it that behavioral investing gets so little love tom so that's a good question of course, I've thought about this for a very long time since we've been at this for about 20 years. First two you talked about was the coaching and then understanding of financial wellness. And the advantage of those two approaches is people may initially not believe in, in psychology and, and having to go through counseling and so forth. But once they go through it, the, the results are generally pretty positive and very consistent. So they see the benefits of going through that. And advisors in particular are, as you well know, are moving much more in that direction, try to be a behavioral coach for their clients. In fact, many people believe in it. I'm in that camp that that's the most important thing an advisor can do. In the case of investing, people, there's a couple of things that go on with people. Number one, if you've got money invested, you tend to keep track of the news. You are aware of what's going on in the world. And it's only natural for you to think, well, let's take that information and make our investment decisions. In the case of behavioral investing, uh, we don't do that. My background is very much big data research. My academic background revolved around that, and so is my investment management revolved around that. The reason being is we're looking what we call behavioral price opportunities. And to identify those, you have to do pretty careful research, big data research, as long as 
databases you can get uh, over as many different observations as you can have. To identify those that are measurable, you've got, I've got to have some sort of objective measure of that, that behavioral price opportunity and uh, have it be persistent. The only way I can show that is if I do research over an extended period of time. So I developed that strategy based on, on that uh, particular idea. Now, for me, I, I'm very much a researcher for 40 years. I've been immersed in large data sets doing the kind of big data research that academics do, and now I do as, as an investment manager. So I identify, so for example, my pure portfolio, which is an individual stock portfolio that I managed for 20 years, I've got five criteria that I've identified in selecting stocks. And a couple of things about those criteria and, and explains why people have a hard time often with the behavioral investing. They are often contrarian. I'm taking advantage of something that the typical investor doesn't like. And so, you know, to be successful, you kind of have to be on the other side of, of, of the market and a, and a group of investors uh, in order to make money. So there, it's a very contrarian. The second thing is it doesn't relate to what's happening today with a company or with the economy. I, I'm a historic, I'm an economist. I give, I'm a professionally trained economist and I'm also a finance person. So I do keep track of the economy, but I don't use that information for making decisions. Again, I'm looking for behavioral price opportunities and do the research accordingly. So when I manage this portfolio, and we run into this pretty regularly with our client, they'll say, hey, you know, you own XYZ stock, and this is what happened. What are you going to do about it? And my response is, well, number one, I didn't know I owned that particular stock. And number two, that's not one of our criteria. Now, that puts off a lot of people when I say that. And the reason I don't know the names is all the research I've done, I've never seen the name of the stock make a difference in putting together a, a portfolio the way we do. Of course, the most typical way of managing portfolios is to do a lot of analysis, gather a lot of information about companies, and, and then put that information together in a framework and, and make a decision so you know that company thoroughly. I worked with lots of financial analysts over the years and they are really good. They're smart, they're, they're well-trained, they have tremendous resources. For example, I worked with the analysts of Janus, and they're heavily resourced. And so the game they play, and we'll call it, I guess a game is the right word, they play is they want to out-analyze and out-gather other analysts. And when I looked at that, I said, you know, there's no way I could compete with those folks. I'm a pretty smart guy and I'm well-trained, but I just don't have the resources to, to do that. So that's why I gravitated into behavioral, behavioral finance. The other problem, of course, is that uh, when you have an investment stop, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So people look at it and say, hmm, I don't know, should I invest in that? Hasn't worked over the last couple of months or the last six months or whatever. And so those are the, those are the kind of problems. So it's, it's, it's just so much different than the way most people think about investing. And they really want to take what they read in the press 
and apply it to the investment. And they want you to do that. Even though you say all the time, well, this is not the way we manage money. We're behavioral. Uh, if you really want that kind of investment management, then there's lots of people out there that do that and can talk about the companies uh, and, and the economy in, in great depth and, 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 and very, in a very interesting way. So anyway, that's my observation on behavioral investing. Yeah, you know, you and I have um, we we land on the same on the same page on uncertain things. Like I think being critical of being critical of in person due diligence. You know, things like having sort of a blind operation where you don't know what you're buying and selling, and and just doing it, uh, you know, in a completely rules based way. Somebody, you know, the the deeply contrarian approach. All of these things, uh, you know, in some respect, fly in the face of of sort of ease and intuition of the average investor. And while the behavioral research proves them to be sound, uh, they are pretty hard to swallow. I think for many people, we're gonna we're gonna dive a little bit more deeply into your sort of unique approach to to running money here. And I want to say we're sitting here in, you know, the first first couple of days of, of January in 2023, and there is an enormous amount of pessimism among market prognosticators and a widespread belief that this is going to be, you know, to to quote my kid's book, a no good, very bad year for, for markets. And you say that there are three specific behavioral biases that lead to this type of conclusion. Uh, can you speak to uh, what role, if any, these sort of forecasts should have in our in our financial decision making? Yeah, that's it's interesting. Of course, this is the start of the year. There's always all these forecasts that come out about what the stock economy is going to do and then what the stock market is going to do. And we've looked back at that, and it turns out that well, really interesting thing, and in, we observe among professional investors and particularly ones that are lay out a, a prediction, is that they tend to underestimate what the re return is. So they come out and say, well, we think it's going to be 5%. The average return of the stock market is 10%. And so, you know, they, even based on that average, they tend to, to under understate what, what the actual return is going to be. So there is this tendency to, to forecast low values. This year, they're, they're even worse, as you mentioned, Daniel. They're, they're really under lowballing the, the estimate. What it'll turn out to be, you know, we've looked at this and about the best you can do is say, well, we think it's going to be 10%. That's the long-term average, probably on a mean squared error forecasting basis. That's probably as good a forecast as you can do. People also, you know, they do tend to anchor what has happened recently, the availability bias of what's happened recently, they, they anchor into that. Uh, so there's, again, that tendency to underestimate what's going to happen and also be more pessimistic. And, and of course, again, this is also behavioral. You know, if, if you underestimate and it turns out to be better, then that's fine. What happens on the other side is if you overestimate it's worse, then that's not good for you. So there's this kind of asymmetry around that forecast of what you get credit for and what you get blamed for. So uh, our particular approach 
is we don't make any forecasts. All we do is look at the current situation right now and say, here's what we see, here are what the measures, we're not going to attempt to make any kind of forecast for the future. Uh, we'll just make the best decision based on the evidence right now today and then making our, uh, building our portfolios. Yeah, I suggest a, a very similar approach in the behavioral investor, just sort of playing the, the cards you've been dealt rather than trying to uh, get out a crystal ball. Dr. Tom, you, you've done research that suggests there's a handful of behavioral barometers that can give us meaningful insights into forward return suggestions. So maybe it's not a forecast, but I'm interested what your behavioral barometers are telling you today and if you could kind of break this research down for us a bit. Yeah, we, our company started, uh, as I said, uh, we've been at this for about 20 years. And initially what we did is we built out a database of active equity managers. And so we have that all since then, gather all the data about active equity managers in the U.S. and in international, but located in the U.S. And we've looked at their strategies. And one of the things we did early was to say, let's, let's actually have the managers tell us what they do versus having somebody from the outside say, well, you're, you're buying small stocks or you're buying low PE stock. And so we went through and developed that particular methodology. We actually got, got it patented and we've got that database that has all of the strategies for all the active equity managers, U.S. and international domicile in the U.S. over time. And as I was doing research on that, what I found is that, and we have 10 strategies, how those strategies rank relative short-term versus their long-term rank turns out to be predictive of what the market is, the current state of the market. And that was really fascinating. That was just something that kind of fell out of the research as, as a bit. I didn't go into that idea. All I wanted to do was able to categorize, categorize managers by their self-declared strategy. That's why I thought that was a good way to do it. And it turns out because active equity managers are focusing on specific uh, factors in the market, so valuation managers are looking at those things that define the value of the company, growth manager, growth, future growth managers are looking at those things that dictate the growth of the company. And how investors are rewarding those strategies turn out to be predictive of returns right now. And so all they say, our expected return right now is, and that's what the, the, the question that, that we're answering. So for example, we have uh, 10 strategies. One of them is future growth. The other one is a risk strategy. There are managers out there that just simply don't really care about returns so much. They're just managing risk. And we keep track of those and we, we actually rank all 10, but these two are the most important. So for example, if investors are rewarding future growth at the top and risk at the bottom and historically the difference between that is about 6%, uh, future growth managers outperform risk managers by about 6%. That's a very positive sign for the stock market. Another way to think of it is people are, are excited about growth. They think growth is 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 going to be a, a major theme moving forward. And so that's important, but they're not so much interested in the risk. So might consider it risk off. On the other hand, if it's flipped, 
And if risk is at the top, and, and that's the way investors are rewarding, and future growth is at the bottom, that's a very bad sign for the market. So that's kind of risk on type of situation. And currently right now, uh, that's a situation we face. Uh, future growth is at the bottom and risk is at the top of the rankings in terms of performance. We measure the, the returns over the previous year. And so that's, that's essentially the mindset of the market right now. And so our expected returns are really quite low. In fact, the portfolio we use to manage this particular, use this particular signal, is called our global tactical. And that, that particular portfolio is in cash right now, which is really unusual. I, we don't, it's less than 20% of the time that we're in cash, but we, we're in cash and we have been in cash since May. And so that's the signal. And so essentially the managers help us organize the, what we call return factors driving the overall market. And then investors tell us which ones are, they think uh, are going to be most important uh, going forward. Uh, and so the combination of those two allows us to make that choice. So we have a, the U.S. market barometer, which is large cap. We have what is called a capitalization barometer, uh, which is small cap. And then we have international development. We trade among those particular markets in the strategy. So really interesting. So that behavior, the weekend, again, that's that proxy, that measurable uh, proxy for that investor behavior. has turned out to be very effective for us in, in managing a portfolio this market exposure portfolio. So that's probably the best example of what we do. Well, I was, I was hoping, <laughs> I was hoping you're going to have some better news for me than all that, but it is still is interesting research and you never know what will come out of the data when you start poking around. And I think it's emblematic of how, you know, behavioral investors have to look in unusual places perhaps, and you're never going to out you know, you're never going to out resource the, the big dogs, like you said, but, but you can look in sort of unexpected places and, and find value. Like, like you've just, like you've just said. So Tom, um, you are one of my favorite things about you. You know, I int introduced you as an iconoclast and, and you are, you are sort of a merciless killer of sacred cows. And, and, you know, one that you've put in your sites is the style box. So I want, to, I want to quote you here from a piece you wrote that you say of style boxes, quote, an extensive literature search reveals that this system has no empirical basis, but simply evolved out of convenience. Along the way, assumptions essential to its validity were made and believed to be true without empirical support. So talk to me about the, the style boxes first, but then I think the, the follow-on question to that is if we're doing away with style boxes, okay, how do you differentiate appropriate style drift from just sort of sloppy, undisciplined investing? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. So in the, in the case of the style green, uh, this came out of the early research in, in the 1980s, the academic research, and this is kind of it. You know, the academics, and I was got my PhD in the late 70s, and so it was modern portfolio theory and markets are information efficient and so forth and so on. And in the early 80s, things started showing up that 
flew in the face of uh, efficient markets. Small cap stocks outperform large cap stocks, and then low PE stocks outperform high PE stocks. And so those were two of what they refer to as anomalies. I think that's anomalies. There's so many anomalies now. You, at some point, you got to say, well, markets aren't informationally efficient. That's, a, that's for another story. And so they subsumed that. And it, it's interesting. I did a lot of research figuring out where the style group came from. And again, that, that quote, and I spent, had a student come in and do research all summer talking to people and be, gathering articles, and I couldn't, we couldn't find it. Before I said anything, I wanted to make sure there really wasn't any research out there, and there isn't. And so I never did hear how the style grids started, but I did learn from the Russell folks that Bill Sharp was in the early, in like 83, 84, we're working with him. There was going to be so many mutual funds they, they ask him, so how do we categorize these funds? So the previous categorization just simply wasn't working. So like a very good professor, Bill Sharp, wandered up to the board and did his famous four squares. And I'm sure, Daniel, you've done four squares. I've done sort of marketing people use them, management. I mean, to explain anything, you have four boxes, and then you have a couple dimensions. And so he said, we've got a large cap and small cap stocks on one dimension, and we've got low PE and high PE stocks on the other. And that's how we can categorize it. And it was just kind of this casual conversation with Russell folks. And so they said, okay, well, we'll do that. Well, <laughs> the next thing we know, the next year, people were starting to talk about style drift. And the Russell folks just went, you've got to be me. All we did is what we just wanted to categorize. And so all of a sudden it became, it, it became an iron rule almost immediately. And then Morty Star picked it up and really popularized it. So the way this world looks at managers is if you buy small cap stocks or large cap stocks or mid cap stocks, or you buy growth stocks or value stocks, so forth, that's your particular style. And that's the box you fit into. The problem is you get locked in that box, and if you find enough stocks outside the box, you can't drift because that's your category. So that's, and that turns out it hurts performance. We did some early research, and that actually hurts performance. So the way we did it, again, as I talked earlier, we, we actually had self-declared strategies. And as we worked on it, we, what, what we did is, and as, we took the actual holdings of the managers and we looked at, for example, we've got valuation managers and future growth managers. So let's say it's valuation manager. We looked at the stocks most commonly held by valuation managers. And we looked at the stocks most commonly held by future growth managers. But this was dynamic. These change every month as we get data in. And so there's a, we call these strategy stock pools, and these pools float around the market. They're not locked in by some arbitrary dimension of, of PE and, and size, for example. It's what the managers think. And again, we, we're looking to the collective intelligence of the active equity managers. And it turned out, and this again was none one of these surprises, Daniel, as I did the research, turns out that if a manager 
buys its own strategy stocks, and there's hundreds of those. So a manager, you know, you can have a manager that's a future growth manager that buys own strategy stocks, and the stocks you look at between the t- two managers, and the, they're really can be completely different, but they're still in those stock pools. And as those stock pools move around the universe, then the manager follows those around. And we call that consistency, um, uh, you know, strategy consistency. And that turns out to be predictive of future performance. In fact, we just, just wrote a paper with another academic on this, that this is a pretty strong predictor of future performance. So if you consistently buy your own strategy stocks, in other words, you're, you're really relying on the collective intelligence of your, your fellow strategy managers, and then you put your final piece on it, which of those hundreds of stocks that you invest in. And that's consistency does predict. So style drift actually predicts good performance. So it's better to style drift and move out of your box, but it's better to stay in your strategy stock pools as we've identified them. And that was really an interesting result that we, we found as we, as we did our early research on this. So it's uh, strategy consistency. The manager buying own strategy stocks and then applying their unique methodology to it at making the investment decision. Yeah, so you're not you're not arguing for a completely wild west approach here. You're you're advocating for methodological consistency, just saying that like the style boxes as currently constituted are perhaps sort of a false choice or, or sort of unnecessarily constraining. But you're not saying, hey, just go nuts and you know do whatever feels good at the moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Tom, I gotta I gotta challenge you here. I gotta be a hard hard hitting reporter here. Here's so here's my Barbara Walters question. You know, in in papers published in in the CFA Institute blog, you've called for an active management renaissance and and said that the death of active equity management was was greatly exaggerated. Yet the trend towards passive continues unabated. You know, in the most the most recent. The most recent data I could find showed that that flows over the last year were negative three hundred and four excuse me, three hundred and forty-five billion into passive and negative two hundred and two billion. So, you know, a uh, a half a trillion dollar delta between passive and active flows. What will it take for this active renaissance to be recognized? And and do you believe that certain market conditions lend themselves more favorably to, to active versus passive management. Since writing those articles a few years ago, I've done some research that comes up with something called an active equity opportunity or AEO, active equity opportunity. So not every market environment is favorable to active management. In fact, about half the time, it's pretty much unfavorable to active management. And what AEO measures is what I call the frothiness of investors buying and selling. And it's measured by cross-sectional standard deviation of stocks and then intertemporal, intertemporal standard deviation. And when those measures are high, particularly the cross-sectional, in other words, the returns in any one period of time, we use a month, 
very widely. So you've got some with really high positive returns, some with really large negative returns. So the wider that is, that makes it easier as an active manager to be able to identify those stocks. When those collapse, in other words, all the returns are about the same across the stocks, it's really hard to come up with the stocks that are going to outperform. And if they do outperform, they don't outperform by very much. And so, for example, the, the year that happened was 2017. Uh, was market volatility dropped to all-time lows in 2017. So that was not a good year uh, for active management. On the contrary, today is a very attractive period for active management. The uh, cross-sectional standard deviations are quite high. We also look at skewness, very positive skewness. So the, that means that the large positive returns are bigger than the large negative returns. And that's it's a very favorable environment. So about half the time, it's favorable for active management. The other half the time, and it's not. And we were actually, we build a portfolio that uh, takes advantage of that movement back and forth. So we think that active managers are very skilled. There's lots of, lots of skill out there, but it, there's environment, market environments where it just doesn't work out very well. And I guess the kind of an analogy is fish, while the fish are running, you can be the best fisherman in the world, but if the fish aren't biting, then there's nothing you can do about it. And that's kind of what we say when AEO is, is very low. Uh, so yeah, today... So this is this is some good news for you, Daniel, compared to Bike and Dash, is that this is a, a really good stock picking market right now. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of the reasons I find your approach so refreshing. It's like I think oftentimes we're sort of philosophically entrenched in the industry. We sort of decamped into these various, you know, segments. Are we are we active? Are we passive? You know. And, and sort of never, never the two shall meet. And, and it's really interesting to just, you know, hear someone like you look at the data and say, okay, well, it depends. You know, some, sometimes the right thing to do is, you know, save your money and be passive. And some, sometimes the right thing to do is fish while the fishing's good. And, and I am very pleased to hear some good news. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> some good news going into 2023. Tom, the, the last question I, I have for you has to do with a conversation that that we had at Schwab Impact. Uh, you know, I had a good conversation with with you and and your right hand man Lambert there, and and we talked about you know one of the biggest knocks against active management historically has been that even where there have been periods of outperformance, the outperformance has seldom been stable and it's been shown to have low persistence. But you suggest once again that that again behavior the whole the whole theme of this podcast is the key to persistent alpha, and you, you think that there's uh, the possibility for more active alpha persistence than is perhaps previously thought possible. Uh, can you can you tell us about some of your research there? Yeah, again, this was another surprise. I just went surprise after another as I poke around in the data, but. Uh, Persistence, you know, as I talked about with active equity opportunity, you know, active managers do well for a period of time and then they have much tougher time. It turns out that the more persistent your performance, in other words, ranking in the top quartile of all, all managers is predictive of future performance. In other words, the more persistent you are, 
And again, it's it's not high returns or low returns, but in that top quartile of performance among all managers. So all the managers could go down during a period when AEO was low, but you're you're still one of the best among those. And the more persistent you are, that is actually predictive of future performance. And so we we look at this as some indication of skill. You're you're able to make the adjustments necessary so that you can be in that top quartile very regularly. And of course, every manager loves to be able to do that. Not very many do. We found that about 15% of the managers are able to be uh, up in that high persistence area, and the rest are not. You know, another problem that I I didn't mention earlier is that what you're rewarded by assets under management. So if you have a good record, then you tend to attract assets. People put money in, they, they chase performance. You then get begged. If you're really successful, then a whole bunch of money comes in, and the strategy that you're pursuing may not work with that many, uh, that much money. We find that, for example, mutual funds of over a billion dollars is very unusual for them to to outperform, simply because if if I'm going to focus on my best ideas as a manager, then I've got to be I've got to be able to trade those particular stocks. And once I get to a billion dollars, and it's it becomes much more difficult to focus on best ideas. We tend to buy other stocks that are not necessarily our best ideas. So that persistence is an indication that you've somehow overcome the the size problem, and you've been able to manage around that and that you stay in that top quartile very regularly in order to perform uh, well over time. So Tom, if I were to offer you $5 billion to manage today, am I correct in in hearing that you would turn me down? No, we actually have a portfolio that works. With oh, I thought you might. I thought you might. <laughs> Our global tactical, which is a market exposure, can handle any amount of money. So that's one of the really nice things about it. If you came to me and said, put this in in the pure portfolio, yes, I would turn you down, I'd say. (laughs) What do you think about global tactical? How do you you feel about global tactical? Well, Tom, you know, it's interesting to hear this persistence research. And I loved, you know, I loved reading the paper uh, that you wrote about it. You know, it's uh, your research also found, I remember reading in your first book and, and finding it so interesting at the time, that while active management writ large doesn't tend to outperform passive management, you know, over 10 and 15 year periods, the highest conviction picks of active managers do outperform passive management over long periods of time. So I think your research is really fascinating in that it sort of unearths ways in which things like uh, career risk and incentive, you know, sort of perverse incentives and, and different things like that can shape human behavior and give us wrong-headed ideas about uh, about markets and and some of the the most the most common conversations we have about things like active versus passive management. So, I'm glad there's people like you out there asking the tough questions, digging deeper. Uh, Tom, if people want to dig into your work the way that I have, where can they find, you know, you, your firm, your books, your papers? Where can where can we learn more about this stuff? So uh, our website is athenainvest.com, and we have all our research posted 
on uh, that particular site. We also generate about once a month uh, something called the Behavioral Advisor, which picks up a, a particular behavioral issue of the day and then presents some evidence and then some recommendations on how advisors can work with their clients uh, to avoid these these particular mistakes. And so they're, they're designed to, for advisors to be able to hand to clients, or if clients just want to come directly to athenainvest.com, they're available. But if you're into deep research like I am, you know, Daniel and I start talking about heterocosticity and autocorrelation, and those things excite me, but not many other people. <laughs> but, but we've got, you know, any depth of research that people want to get into from the behavioral advisor, which are real quick hits on behavior, all the way to ex- extended uh, uh, research papers. So yeah. it's all on peanutvest.com. Tom's, Tom's got everything from uh, deeply client-friendly uh, research to to uh, papers that include things like heteroscedacity and leptocurtic. So you can find it all with Dr. Shalom. Tom, thanks, my man. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you very much, Daniel. I enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries, and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.